Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship or you focus, study the word, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together tonight, that we can be encouraged by your word, that the eternal truths here will strengthen our souls, will be reminded that there are universal absolutes in your word that address every situation in life. And no matter what the situation, there's a framework within uh, your word that we can utilize to uh, make decisions, make wise decisions in the issues of life. Now, Father, as we study these things, give us objectivity and clarity that we may understand them clearly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Hebrews 2. We started this two or three weeks ago, and then I was gone last Thursday night when I went up to Preston City, had three nights there, and covered in three nights what I covered in, I think, four weeks here on Sunday morning on music and worship. So everybody got a break last Thursday night, and now we're back to our study of Hebrews. And just to give you an framework or reminder, rather, of where we are, we are in Hebrews chapter 7 at a very important passage that is frequently misapplied and misunderstood. It has to do with the context of the paying of tithes from Abraham to Melchizedek, and there is a statement made in Uh, Hebrews 7, 9, and 10, that is somewhat cryptic. Even Levi, of course, he was many generations after Abraham. Uh, He was four generations after Abraham. Even Levi, who receives tithes, or actually three generations, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, so to speak. That's a key word there, is that phrase, so to speak, in a manner of speaking, in a way that indicates clearly The author is talking about a figure of speech here. He's not talking literally. It's so important to come back and to take the time to investigate uh, details when we are applying a literal principle of hermeneutic. It it can get confusing in places. We'll see that when we get into some passages later on in, in our study of Revelation. But here the author is simply using this to reinforce a point within the structure of his whole argument, that Levi, being a great-grandson of Abraham, would, since Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek, that Levi, the the head of the tribe uh, for the Levitical priesthood, would also be inferior to Melchizedek, and therefore the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. But there have been those in the history of Christianity who have taken this in a more literal manner. And they have developed a view that would suggest that Levi was in some sense actually there paying tithes to Abraham. And that would mean that for for parents, whether we're talking about ancient history with Adam or Noah or Abraham or modern times, that subsequent generations are in some sense fully present in the activities of the previous generations. And this brings up a topic that is very important for contemporary issues on the origin and the transmission of human life. And as we have studied this, I pointed out that there are two positions historically. The position to which I just referred, that there is a some level of physical presence of one generation in previous generations, is known as traditionism. 
traditionism. And this is an idea that both the material body and the immaterial soul are transmitted through physical procreation. Now, what's, what I think is interesting and problematic for this view is how can the material <clears throat> produce the immaterial? And I think it's a problem for many Christians because they want to hold to an immaterial soul. What's interesting is that Tertullian, who developed this position, did not hold to an immaterial soul, but held that this soul was, was material. And I find that certain objections that traditionists have to the other position uh, still work only if you presuppose a certain amount of uh, materiality to the soul. And we're going to have to examine that as we go through in some of the details. But I just want to do a little review to get you uh, up to date and up to speed with where we've been, been already. The other position is a creationist position. Now, in the last uh, 40 years or so, since the abortion debate has come along and with the decision of Roe v. Wade back in 1973, this position has fallen on hard times. And that is because many people today automatically assume that a creationist position is somehow pro-abortion. Historically, it is not a, a, a position that has been uh, pro-abortion. pro-abortion. That is, I think that, that's a fault of theologians, and it's also a fault of liberal Christians that have uh, taken this position. It's a fault of people who politicized a theological position. Creationism teaches that only the body is generated through physical creation and that the soul is directly created by God. Hence, for creationists, the, the uh, you know, I still need to fix that slide, don't I? The, the God uh, di- directly or indirectly creates the body. Yeah, that's right. The body is created by God indirectly through intermediate means, and the soul is created directly by God. That's, that's right. I've got it right. The body is created indirectly through normal means of procreation. The soul, though, is created directly by God through um, uh, immediate means, or, or through, excuse me, that should read immediate means. He immediately produces. That's where there's a problem. I want to correct that right now so I don't quit repeating that every time I, every time I put that slide up there. There we go. Okay. Through immediate means, God directly creates the soul. Now, here's a key verse. is Genesis 2-7, and the issue here, and... Just, just bear with me, we're going to cover new ground. Each time we, we sort of peel back this onion, we're going a little deeper in it. Is whether or not this just describes the original creation or whether this describes a pattern that is true for every human being in every generation. And traditionists will say, and I've alluded to an article in the recent Israel My Glory magazine by Reynolds Showers, who did a very superficial job of interacting with the creationist position, and basically just said, this is a one-time event. Well, it doesn't do justice to many other passages, as I'm going to show you. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, last time I focused on the key verb here, or the key noun, which is neshama for breath of life. But let's look at some other key vocabulary in this particular verse, because it comes up in other subsequent passages in Isaiah and Job, places like that that are important, because they get their terminology from this passage. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. This is a word that's used of how a potter would shape clay. It's the uh, Hebrew verb yatsar, and it's one of the three or four different verbs used for creation. You have bara, which only God uh, <coughs> God does, you have asa, which is a general term for making or doing something. You have yatser, which is the idea of physically shaping or, or fashioning something, forming it, molding it. Uh, or, and you also have the verb bana, which means to build. Uh, yatser here refers to God forming man of the dust of the ground. This is the formation, the structuring of the uh, physical body of man. And it's separate from that which energizes man, which is clearly immaterial at this part. He breathes into man's nostrils, and this is the Hebrew verb nafah. Now, what's interesting is I looked this up somewhere uh, today in one of the uh, 
as I was studying and doing additional reading on this subject, and they said, see, this is just a, this is a, a, a metaphor. This is just a figure of speech. God didn't actually breathe into the body of All right, the more we get into this, the more we battle this whole thing of literal interpretation. What in the text tells us that this would just be an image and not literal activity? Where do we go? If God didn't literally breathe into the dust of the ground, did God even use the dust of the ground? Did God even form it? How do we know he did anything? If we start saying everything's just a, a figure of speech. You have to be able to demonstrate from the context and from usage that something is a figure of speech. God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the neshema, the breath of life here. And so breathing and breath, these are terms that are used to refer to that which is immaterial and is related to this concept of, of wind, as it were. And so man is then described as a living being. And we have two words here. We have a verb, hayah, which is a noun that means a living thing, an animal, a beast. Uh, the basic uh, meaning of this is uh, usually related to animals or beasts. Then you have the uh, noun, nefesh which is the word that is normally translated soul, but it also has a broad range of meanings. Just because you see the word nefesh there, people automatically jump to soul in the concept that it's later developed when we get into the New Testament. It here it just refers to the immaterial part of man. It includes both the what we later call the soul and the human spirit. Uh, nefesh can mean wind, breath, soul, the animating principle of life, uh, emotion, it can be a term just for a person, like how many souls went down when the Titanic sunk, that, that idea. Uh, a passion or desire, so it has a broad range of meanings, and it, sometimes it really overlaps with the word ruach, which is the word for spirit, normally referring to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but ruach also means wind or breath. So it's important to pay attention to these ideas because they emphasize this immaterial basis for what animates the physical body and is the coming together of the material body and the immaterial soul that produces full human life here. But what's important, for, as I pointed out last time, is that we can't minimize the importance of the physical body here. At, at, at all, I pointed out, going to Luke chapter 16, that even in the intermediate stage, there is an intermediate body. The soul can't exist without a body. And this has been, a, the body issue has been a problem for Christians for centuries, since the influence of Neoplatonism in the early church. And we have to recognize that the scripture puts a high value on the body. See, in Platonism... We're going to go back to a chart I used when we talked about uh, history of uh, music and, and art. Is a house. This house represents the totality of the uh, of, of creation. What happens in Greek thought is the introduction of a dichotomy, a separation, as it were, of two different levels of existence or knowledge. And this goes back to Plato. And Plato used a very famous image in his book, The Republic, and where he talks about uh, <clears throat> being in a cave. And every all uh, people are in a cave, and all they see is shadows on the wall. And all they, they, they when you see anything in this life, anything that's in the material world, that's just a shadow of uh, ultimate reality. So that when you see a chair, that's merely a pale imitation and reflection of some ideal chair that exists in some ideal realm. And so ultimate reality, and, and we might call it real reality, and without being redundant, is this upper story, which he called the realm of forms or ideas. And it has to do with the essences of things. And it's interesting, just as a little side note, that that Greek word for form was morphe. And so it had to do with the essence of things. And see, it talks about how the second person of the Trinity in Philippians 2 is the morphe of God, the form of God. 
He didn't think being in the form of God was something to be held after. See, that's what it's talking about there. He didn't think being in the essence of God. So that word carries that connotation. Well, you have this ultimate realm up there, out there, that's where where reality is. That's where there's some sort of eternal reason, rationality, order, truth, beauty, all exist at this upper story level. But what happens in reality, matter is basically evil. It's not really important. It's just a a place where our souls get imprisoned for a while. Remember, for Plato, souls pre-existed physical life. And they they exist, and then the body's created, and then they're put there and sort of uh, isolated, imprisoned in matter. Later on, the Gnostics are going to take that where where you have to learn to through knowledge to to be released from this matter prison, and you do that through knowledge and esoteric knowledge and mysticism to approach the upper story. But matter is a realm of chaos, irrationality, and evil. So matter, in other words, a physical body that houses a soul is basically a trap. It's a prison. It's it's bad. Now, when this came over into Christianity, because of Genesis 1, when God says all of this is good, they can't say that matter is bad. It's just not going to be very important. And so the early church always had trouble dealing with uh, the, the, the flesh, not just in terms of sin, but in terms of the importance of the, of the body. And yet when, there, when Christ was resurrected, what happened there in the grave? Did he just get a new body outside the grave and the old body just stayed there? No. That body that he had from birth is transformed in some way and mortality puts on immortality. That's a terminology that, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. That physical body that was subject to death is transformed to a body that is not going to be subject to death. And when we get raptured, and uh, we're given a resurrection body that we're, we're physically raptured, and there's a transformation that goes up in the process. When you get raptured, your soul's not going to zip up to heaven and leave your earthly body behind. It, the body, your body goes with you and gets transformed into, the, into your resurrection body on the way up so that the present physical body that we have is not insignificant and unimportant. You may not like it. It gets old and gets subject to the ravages of time and disease and and everything else that we have to put up with. But what I'm emphasizing here is for in, Christ, in biblical Christianity, the physical body is important. We don't have the soul as the main thing, and the physical body is just, well, we just have to put up with it. It is important. So you can't go back to Genesis 2-7 and say that, What's going on here shows the importance of the soul, which is the real you, and the body is just some sort of, well, that's just just a bunch of uh, cells and um, interaction between muscles and air and a lot of neurons and uh, electrical circuits and a heart beating and all that, and there's nothing to it. That is, that's not right. When, when you come into Hebrews, as we've seen, is that Jesus says, a body you have prepared for me. So that when God is shaping that body for Adam in Genesis 2-7, this is a body that's going to be the, the best conceivable, physical, finite home for the incarnation of the eternal second person of the Trinity to give him the best and the greatest possible way in which he could express all that God is and reveal all who God is. Now, that's a pretty uh, developed and uh, understanding of the importance of the physical body. So we can't just come along and say that whatever this thing is that houses the soul is just some sort of afterthought or secondary thing. That comes. That idea comes right out of... Platonism and Neoplatonism, and is just as much a worldly idea. So we saw that since the original creation, God uses indirect means to create physical life through the process of procreation. But since ultimately everything comes from God, the Scripture speaks of immediate creation and immediate creation or the immediate and immediate involvement of God in the same way. 
God makes your body. We see that terminology in in um, Psalm 139. We see how David talks about how God is intimately involved in the making of the physical body, but that's talking about a, a more immediate involvement. It's not a direct involvement. It's an indirect involvement because he's using the natural processes of, of procreation. And yet when it comes to the soul, there's more of a, an immediate creation and impartation there. Now, last time I talked about uh, some passages that show that God uh, uses various indirect means to create physical life, talking about the physical processes of, of birth. Job 1.21, Job 33.4, Ecclesiastes 12.7 is a key verse. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, and there's the word ruach, the spirit will return to God who, what? Who gave it. So it directly relates God to the giving of of the, the spirit in that particular past, making a distinction between the physical, material, uh, the dust that will return to earth as it was, and the spirit that goes goes to God. Passage of that. Okay, Isaiah twenty-two or Isaiah two twenty-two. We have the phrase "sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils." Talking about life is related to Neshama. And the simple point I'm making there is that if if the claim is that God's breathing of Neshama at, in Genesis two seven was a one-time event, then you wouldn't find that terminology used successively down through the generations. But you do, which shows that it's not a one-time event. Isaiah 42.5, uh, that says, a God, the, uh, God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, Neshema. God is still giving breath to the people on the earth in spirit ruach. It's used in parallelism there to Neshema and Ruach to the Spirit to those who walk on it. Also looked at Isaiah fifty-seven, sixteen. And then we came to a fourth point, <clears throat> dealing with when does God impart the soul? In other words, does this happen at conception? Does it happen at birth? Does it happen, um, is, it just, is it carried through somehow in the process of, of procreation? Think about it. Does it come from the egg or the sperm? Which one? You get a half soul from one, half soul from the other. Which which one? Where, where does the soul come from? That's interesting. When you get into you get into a lot of really interesting questions here. Philosophy has always wondered and and struggled with trying to explain how an immaterial substance can control a material substance. How can an immaterial Thing like the soul control and interact. What's the what is the exact connection between the immaterial soul and the material brain? And we have all kinds of questions. I can't answer. I can raise them. What happens when you have somebody who has a a major stroke? What happens if they? Uh, a case happened in several years ago in an accident in in uh, Arizona, where a lady had complete and total amnesia. And this went on for years. Didn't know anybody. Didn't know her husband. Her husband rebuilt his entire relationship with her. She fell in love with him all over again. They got married all over again. She has no recall of the ten years they were married before the accident. None whatsoever. You know what happens if somebody like that's a believer? What happens to the doctor in this hall? I don't. I don't understand. So what happens when parts of the brain are completely destroyed through stroke, through brain damage, through anything like that? The soul can't use that part of the brain anymore, so it changes things. But there's clearly, from the language of Scripture, an immaterial component that links somehow with the material component and manages to utilize it. So when does that come together? Is that transmitted physically? Well, I pointed out that even the angelic doctor, Thomas Aquinas, in uh, his Summa Theologia, said that it was heresy to think that the soul was transmitted through the semen. That's a direct quote. So that view was was condemned for centuries in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, we looked at various terms that were used as we went down through the passage. We looked at terms um, for birth, 
And we looked at Psalm 22, Psalm 58. Key passage we looked at was Isaiah 46.3. Here we are. Listen to me, God says, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth, born or carried by me from birth, me rechem. And I said rechem was a term that we, that was referred to the to the bowels. It's used in in synonymous parallelism with the Hebrew word beten, which is the womb. And the mi is the Hebrew preposition men, meaning out from or from, indicating source or origin. And so God says, from birth. Uh, I have carried you, and, and I lifted you, as it were. I have you, you who have been lifted by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. And we've seen that this phrase, from the womb, is used in synonymous parallelism with the phrase from birth. And the point that I'm going to make and continue to make through tonight, because it's so important, is that the Bible never, ever, not once, makes the parameters of life conception, and death. Not once. The vocabulary is there. I just want to make sure you understand that. The vocabulary is there, but it never uses that vocabulary. It always uses this this imagery of mebetin, and from the womb doesn't mean in the womb. And I'm going to show you that tonight as we look at various passages. It doesn't mean in the womb. It means from, from the time of birth, from the time that the baby comes out from the womb. That's the starting point. And so when God uses a comparison with Israel, he doesn't say from conception. He says from birth. That's the starting point is birth. Job 129, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. He could have made a better point if he had said, You know, I was conceived and I shouldn't have even been conceived. My mother should have just had a miscarriage. But see, he doesn't say that. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 3.11. Why did I not die at birth? Me reckon. Why did I not die from, uh, from, uh, from birth, from the womb? Reckon is sometimes used for the womb. Come forth from the womb. See, this phrase from the womb is consistently understood by translators as being identical with the concept of at birth. So he doesn't say, why didn't I die? Why didn't my mother just miscarry? He says, why didn't I die after I was born? Assumption there is he's not a full I until birth. Because it's at birth when the baby takes that first breath, neshama, and receives a soul from God. Job 10.19, I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb, me beten, to tomb, from birth to tomb. Those are the parameters of life. Isaiah uh, 44.2, that says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Now, if that means from birth. And we'll see uh, later on in my notes, I did, a, did a, <coughs> some research today and Search the phrase from birth in about five different English translations. And it's interesting. All the, tra- all the different English translations translate mebetin as from birth at different points. Not always at the same point. In the Old Testament, they'll usually have eight to ten verses that are translated, will, will translate it from birth. But they don't do it consistently at the same places. So if you looked at the totality of those, you'd probably have... Uh, 16 to 18 verses in the Old Testament that it's by one translation or another that Mibetan is translated from birth. So the translators clearly understand that this phrase means from birth. It's not talking about activity inside of the womb prior to birth. Isaiah 44, 24, God, this, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you, from the womb. It's not talking about action in the womb again. Very important to pay attention to those uh, prepositions. That they're, they're very, very important. So God's talking about God working on Israel after their birth, parallel to what we saw earlier in Isaiah 46.3. I, the Lord, and the maker of all things, stretch out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth alone. So you have two different verbs here. We went over this last time. 
the verb yalad, which is the verb for birth. Now, when you take a prepositional statement like from birth, preposition from, noun, object of the preposition, birth. That's how you form that prepositional phrase. There is no noun in Hebrew for birth. All you have is a verb. And yalad means to give birth, to beget, used 388 times for giving birth. You do have a verb, however, for a verb and a noun for conception. They're used a number of times. The verb conceive is used 52 times. There's a verb, that noun for conception used many times. So you do have the linguistic tools to say from conception. But they don't do it. They use the circumlocution, mebeten, from the womb, because that's how they say from birth, because they can't say from birth because there's no word for birth, no noun for birth. So they have to use a, 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 an idiom. Look at how this is used. Genesis 4.1, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, there's our first verb, hara, she conceived and gave birth to Cain. So it's talking about two different periods. Conception is when she becomes, in fact, some dictionaries just will define hara as to become pregnant. So it says she became pregnant, and later, nine months later, she gave birth to Cain. So these are two different words, two different events. Genesis 4.17, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived, she became pregnant, and she gave birth nine months later to Enoch. These are two different words describing two different events. So we have various biblical verses that give us those parameters uh, for life. Ecclesiastes 3.2 doesn't say a time to conceive and a time to die. It says a time to give birth and a time to die. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child will be conceived. Is that what it says? The language is there. We've already seen they have the verb for it. They don't. It says, for a child will be born to us. Uh, Matthew eleven eleven. truly I say unto you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater. It doesn't talk about those, the unborn. Job 14, 1, man who is born of woman. Short-lived and full of trouble. Job 15, 14. What is man that he should be pure or he who is born of woman? See, they, they have the language to say who is conceived of woman, but they never, ever use that, that verbiage. Never. Not one time. Now, what happens in the abortion debate is people constantly come out and say, life begins at conception. Well, if life begins at conception, you have to find passages in Scripture where the parameters of life are given from conception to death. And you don't have it. And I've challenged people with this, and they just go, I never thought about that. And I've never had anybody come back to me with an answer on this particular point. <clears throat> Job 38.21, you know, for you were born then, not you were conceived then. The number of your days is great. Job 1.21, naked I came from my mother's womb, womb to tomb. Job 3.11, Job 10.18, we've already looked at these. Uh, Job (coughs) 10.18 and 19, would then, uh, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Okay, now, what does the scripture say about the development of the immaterial part of man? This is very important because, as I said earlier, we have the original model in, in Genesis 2-7 talks about God breathing into man. The passages I've shown you already from Isaiah that talk about breath of life, we'll review those again. Isaiah 2:22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. And Isaiah 57:16, where you have a parallelism between Ruach and Neshama. These two verses. The point is that the breathing is the sign of life. That's what's <coughs> indicative of life being present is breath. Without oxygen, there's no life. There's no soul. There's no, no animating spirit. So that would argue against the idea that Genesis 2-7 is just, was just a one-time event 
that is when God got the got the engine of human life started. And after that, everything transmitted differently. Well, after that, the physical process was different, but the immaterial process still is immaterial, and we still have the breath of God keeping man alive. Now, the next thing we have to look at is we've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. We have to jump ahead into the New Testament and look at some New Testament passages. Now, in the New Testament, we have a Greek phrase, ek koilia. Now, ek is the Greek preposition that is parallel to the Hebrew preposition men. Ek means out of, uh, away from, uh, indicating origin. And so this phrase, ek koilia, is used to indicate uh, birth. It's just picked up from the Old Testament. It's the same imagery meaning from birth. However, there is a Greek noun for, for birth that is used one time in the Greek New Testament. You have ekkoilia used a number of times, but you see in Greek they did have the verbiage uh, to talk about from birth. They did have a noun for birth, and it's used one time in the Greek New Testament, and that's in uh, John 9, 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And it's from the uh, verb ganao. It's uh, the noun form. And, and that's the, the only time, and there's about, nine, uh, no, about seven other uses uh, in the New Testament where you have the phrase uh, ek koilia. And they're very informative. In Acts 14.8, <clears throat> in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting. He was a cripple. Now, New American Standard and New King James translated literally a cripple from his mother's womb. But the ESV translates it from birth, understanding that that's the sense of that particular passage. That's the, that's the meaning of that particular, uh, particular passage. A cripple from birth who had never walked. Now, think about it a minute. Would it make sense to be talking about what was going on inside the womb and be making a point about the fact that he never walked? Nobody walks in the womb. Nobody walks till they get out of the womb. But what I find interesting here is when did they discover that his feet were weak and he couldn't walk? The day he was born? A week later? Two weeks later? When did kids start walking? How old are kids when they start trying to get up and walk? Nine months? A year? A year and a half? Something like that. So at least a year. Texas is making a point out of this, but my question is, when did they discover that he couldn't walk? So they say he's a cripple from his mother's womb, but they don't really realize he doesn't have strength in his feet until sometime after he's born. I will show you why I'm making that point later, because I would love to prove it. I can't do it. I've never found documentation to prove it, that the phrase from birth isn't a literal term for maybe exactly birth, but it might be a term for just anywhere from birth to early life, something like that. And I'll show you why, why I uh, wonder about that is because of some things with John the Baptist. A cripple from his mother's womb. Okay, another passage, Acts 3.2, another lame man. Certain lame man, lame man lame from his mother's womb, from birth, uh, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. Now there are several translations again who translate that from birth. Now, the NIV translates the phrase Mibetan in the Old Testament eight times as from birth. And it translates the phrase ekkoilia in the Greek five times as from birth. So I'm just saying that when I come along and I say this idiom means from birth, I am not arguing out of the context of accepted normative scholarship. All these translations do it. They just don't do it consistently, but they do it. The NET has the same number total. That still has 13 verses, but they're different verses. So if we add them all up, we're, we're probably going to, as I said earlier, we get 18, 19 maybe verses that all where, where you translate ekkoilia and ek and nibetan as from birth. 
Now, one Old Testament passage is, is, is uh, or let's go to one New Testament, then we'll go to the Old Testament. I'll jump one in. Okay. Matthew 19.12. For there are, we just, I'm not going to deal with the whole verse here. That's, that's a whole other subject. But I just want to point out this illustration uh, that Jesus is using, the first phrase. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. The word born is ganao which is the verb meaning to give birth to, to beget through procreation, who are born from their mother's womb. See, there's no word for conception there. When they were conceived that way, he's saying they were born that way. Birth is when the process begins. They're born that way from their mother's womb. So the phrase echoilea is used for from their mother's womb, indicating that echoilea is a synonymous concept to uh, being born. So I, I'm not making this up. That echoilea doesn't mean in the womb. It talks about what happens after the baby exits the womb, comes out from the womb. We can go back to a passage we touched on a little bit on Tuesday night, Judges 13.5, related to, to Samson. The angel of the Lord appears to his mother and says, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And we have the same thing that we saw earlier when I was talking in Genesis 4 passages, conceive is hurrah, and to bear is yalad. But what's interesting here is when you look at the Septuagint. Septuagint was the 3rd century to 2nd century B.C. translation by rabbis of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Conception is translated with the phrase engastri, over here on the left. See, in engastri, not ek, but in. Conception is what happens in the womb. Okay? And consistently, conception is translated with the preposition in but birth is translated with the preposition ek. Very important. That's why Jesus says no jot or tittle, no yod, no letter, no part of a letter will pass away until all the law has been fulfilled. We have to pay attention to these, to these things. So the Greek clearly recognized this difference in these prepositions. So what this is literally saying is you will have, it has the uh, <coughs> verb to have there, you shall have in the womb and then give birth to a son. And the uh, verb for birth is the verb yalad. Here we go. Uh, you shall conceive and bear a son. The Greek for conceive is tikto here from classical Greek or Septuagint Greek to, um, or excuse, excuse me, I got that uh, confused. Tikto should be to conceive. Um, and then yalad is to bear or begat. I got that confused on the left. Ticto meaning to conceive. Uh, you will become pregnant. Now, let's look at, start looking at some of the problems and pe- questions people raise, and one of them is Psalm 139. So let's just turn our Bibles to Psalm 139. This is a fabulous psalm because it's talking about God's knowledge of each of us and, and the fact that, that um, we're not accidents. And you might look at yourself in the mirror and think, well, I'm not sure why I made the way I am made. But this passage is talking about the fact that even though the process of, of the production of your physical body is done through intermediate means, God is not disengaged from that process. You may get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, oh, just scary, I look so much like my dad or my mother. The genetics are terrible things. And we all do that. I mean, every every year I look in the mirror a little more. It's a, that scary image looks back, and realize more and more how much I, I look like my dad. And it's um, and that's a that's been a good thing most of my life. But we have genetic. But that's not an accident because there's no accidents in the plan of God, right? God's involved. That's what Psalm 139 is talking about. Look down to verse oh, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. See, there's a 
preposition but in the Hebrew, which is the preposition for in. So it's talking about even though it's through intermediate means, God uses intermediate means all kinds of times in our lives, but that doesn't mean he just because it's intermediate that he's less involved and that it's less significant. For you were form, you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, in, in this psalm, David isn't praising God because David was a handsome man. David isn't praising God because every human being is born uh, beautiful and strong and healthy. He's not saying that. He's saying that he's talking about the fact that that the ideal human being as originally designed for God, by God, is intricately made and designed by God and thus is important. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's the idea that there is, there was care that was taken. That idea of fearfully there is a Hebrew verb, uh, yareh, which means fear, but it also has that idea of reverence and awe. And, and when God is making that, looking at that clay that he's making Adam's body with, he knows that the second person of the Trinity is going to be housing that. So there is this sense of, uh, of destiny there in his mind. There is a sense that this is not just some casual, well, this looks like a good design plan. We'll go with that. No, it's not some afterthought. There is a lot, uh, if, say it somewhat anthropomorphically, God put a lot of thought into it. Carefully designed our physical bodies the way they are. All of the electrical connections, the DNA, the cell structure, all the things that go into making us work the way we work. He goes on to say, Marvelous are your works, and that my, know, my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. This is talking about what's going on through the uh, process of development inside the womb. And skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. What does that mean, unformed? That's the opposite of Yatser, being formed. So it's talking about the process of development inside of the womb. Now, whatever else we can say about this particular passage, and one thing we have to say is that this passage is putting a lot of positive uh, uh, emphasis on the, the development of the physical body in the natural process of procreation. It, what's going on inside the womb is not the growth of a tumor. This is what you often hear from the pro-abortionist, is that, well, it's just like a tumor. You can just cut it out. It's like a hangnail. It's just a mass of cells. No, I'm, you, you may get a mass of cells that develop into a tumor, and that's what it's going to end up being is a tumor. You may get a hangnail. What, guess what it's going to end up being? It's going to end up being a hangnail. But what is happening inside the womb of a woman is destined to gain a soul, and it, with, unless something interrupts it, it is going to be in the image of God. It is going to be fully formed in the image of God and sold by God, and therefore what is going on inside the womb needs to be taken very, very seriously. And in the early church, the view, this view has been called the nascent life view. That's spelled N-A-S-C-E-N-T. The nascent life view. It is not the view of the uh, <clears throat> traditionist that what you have in the womb is full human life. It's not saying that. It's not saying that it's nothing either. It's saying is that it is the, a, a process has begun at conception that is a very important and significant and serious process that unless it is interrupted is going to culminate not in a tumor, not in a hangnail, not in just a bunch of biological cells, but in an, someone who is a person in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, you can't treat this lightly. You can't treat this casually. That when someone becomes pregnant, 
This is a serious matter that is not to be taken lightly. Now, the question then becomes, well, is this murder? Well, if the soul's not there, it's not murder. It may be immoral. It may be illegal. I'm not illegal. Wrong word. It may be immoral. It may be sinful. It may be carnal. But it's not murder. Now, we're going to deal with a couple of passages uh, that are usually cited for that case. We're going to have to properly exegete them in Exodus uh, in order to make sure we understand that that is not talking about that. So I'm talking about the death uh, or the stillborn birth of a child. So what we have here in, in um, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, is a passage talking about God's involvement, even though it's, it's uh, uh, immediate, even though it's indirect, it is nevertheless involved in that process, and it is a process that is going to culminate in something that is uh, very, uh, very important, very precious. Jeremiah one five is another verse that is often uh, alluded to or gone to in this debate. And here God says to Jeremiah, "Before I formed you in the womb." Guess what word we have there? God Sarah. Before I formed you, that's the same word used for the formation of the physical, material body, and, and, and Adam before he breathed life into him. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's talking about the foreknowledge of God, the omniscience of God, that billions of years ago he knew who was going to be born. And he knew that Jeremiah would be born. He says, before you were born, I sanctified you. Notice he doesn't say before you were conceived. He says, before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. This verse is simply saying that before Jeremiah was alive, before his parents were alive, before any of this ever happened, God in his omniscience had a plan for Jeremiah's life and knew he would be born. Okay, then we get into a couple of other passages. I think I'm going to save this. For next time, because if we get in, once we get into dealing with John the Baptist, we have to deal with both Luke one and Luke two, and then we have to go back and deal with the Exodus, uh, pas- Exodus passage, where you have two men fighting and they uh, get involved with a third person, a pregnant woman who gives birth, and we have good clear terminology there. So we need to deal with all of those together. So I will wait and come back, and we will go into those and then address several of the objections that are uh, typically raised from the traditionist side of the house on how does uh, uh, how, how do genetic traits get passed on, uh, how come you, your, your soul seems to have certain similarities to your parents' soul, and excuse me, things of that nature. So we'll come back and address those questions uh, next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, go into these these detailed passages. And it's, uh, it's not always easy to understand, and sometimes we don't get it the first time. But we pray that as we go over this, we'll begin to see the thrust of what your word is saying and that it will help us to more clearly address uh, issues of concern today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.